Well, welcome everyone to our second session in the history of the Reformation. Page six, lesson two tonight. Everybody have a notebook? Anybody need one? Got some over here? All right. Page six, lesson two. And we're going to be doing background to the Reformation for the next few weeks so that we see what gave rise to the Reformation in the 16th century. So it is going to be uh, church history, as I assume you expected when you took a class on the Reformation. Uh, But we're going to be looking at all of this, though, not just starting with the Reformation itself, but looking at the background to the Reformation so that you'll have a better idea as to what gave rise to it and what the issues were uh, at the time of the, the Reformation. In our first lesson last week, if you were not able to be here last week to hear that, you have the notes, and then the lectures are recorded, and they're at our website. So if you ever missed one, you can go on the website and listen listen to it. But we saw last week that the church began, uh, according to Acts chapter 2, on the day of, of Pentecost. And then the book of Acts records for us that the church grew rapidly. 3,000 people become Christians on the very first day of the church. And then just a short time later, Acts chapter 4 tells us that there are 5,000. So we've gone from 3,000 to to 5,000. Then in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, it tells us that the word of God continued to spread and the number of disciples increased. It doesn't give us a number. It just says that it increased from that that 5,000. And the book of Acts gives us seven progress reports on the advance of the gospel. So not only is it growing numerically, but it's it's spreading. And these progress reports are in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. I just mentioned Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Chapter 12 and verse 24. Chapter 16 and verse 5. So you got 247, 6, 7. Uh, 931. I didn't mention 931. Then 1224, 16:5, Acts chapter 19 and verse 20, and then the very last two verses of the book of Acts are the seventh progress report on the spread of the gospel. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. So Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is giving you documenting for us the spread of Christianity in its first few decades and the growth of the church and the spread of the the gospel. By the end of the third century, so that would be the 200s, by the time you get to the end of the the 200s, there are no fewer than 2.5 million Christians. No fewer than 2.5 million. There are as many as 10 million, according to estimates. So Christianity in its first few centuries has spread widely. Now, that's the good news. When Christianity spreads, when the gospel has success, what always happens? There's always opposition. So opposition to the spread of the gospel also occurs in the forms of persecution and heresy, false teaching. So persecution for the the growing church. We saw last week that That persecution was often local, just in particular places, and would happen from time to time, sporadic, local and sporadic. 
But there were other times where it was systematic persecution, that it was persecution uh, as a policy of the of the government. And in the notes for lesson one last week, I mentioned a couple of those persecutions, one that took place in the year 250, middle of the third century, another one that took place in the year 303. Those are just examples of the kind of systematic persecution that would take place. So you've got this opposition to the growing church in the form of persecution, but also in the form of false teaching, heresy. We see in the Bible that there was false teaching going on, and that gave rise to much of what's written in your New Testament. Much of your New Testament is written to refute people who are teaching false stuff. Book of Galatians, the entire book of Galatians, is about false teaching with regard to the, the gospel. And that, of course, went on for these first few centuries of the church. There were a number of isms. I listed some of those in last week's notes. Gnosticism and Marcionism and Montanism. And I mentioned what those are. I won't bore you with that again. And you, you won't be tested on any of that. And your salvation doesn't depend on on knowing any of that. But just suffice it to say, there were a lot. There was much false teaching that went around. Now, here's why all that's important. You've got persecution, you've got false teaching. How is the church going to respond to that? In the first century, in the first few decades of the church, you knew who to turn to to handle false teaching. You knew who to turn to to rally the church to be unified and persevere in the face of persecution. That was going to be the apostles. You had the apostles to turn to. But after the apostles passed off the scene, by the end of the first century, in 95 AD, you have the last apostle died. And that is uh, John, the apostle John. So now, by the end of the first century, you don't have any more apostles. But you still have persecution, and you still have heresy. So what are you going to do? And this created a problem. In the first century, the apostles would respond. Now, it's important for you to know that the apostles were special. I talk about this in Master Plan for Life that we're doing on Sunday mornings uh, at the, in the 11 o'clock hour. So you'll hear some of this again when we get to that. But it's important to know that these apostles who ran the church, founded the church, were the go-to guys for false teaching and to unify the church in the midst of suffering and persecution, that they were special and what they were doing could not be replicated by other people. Could not be replicated the same way the apostles did. Now, I hope you'll see, before we're done today, why it's important to know that, that the apostles were a special group. But I want to prove to you that the apostles were a special special group. Now, if you care to jot any of these passages down, uh, that's why we give you paper. And if you need a pen, anybody need a pen? You get your pen. Thank you. I knew I, knew I had seen pens around here. I thought, I'm going to offer people pens, and now there are no pens to, uh, to give. This is how our church name us. Everybody else good? Pass this to those people, will you? 
Hey, they want them both, Tony. Right. So John chapter 14 and verse 26. John 14, 26. Jesus says the night before he dies to the apostles that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving, but God is not leaving you. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to be with you. And John chapter 14 and verse 26, he is going to bring, now I'm quoting, he's going to bring everything to your remembrance that I have commanded you. The Holy Spirit's going to give you guys perfect recall to remember what I said. He says in chapter 16 and verse 13, John 16 and verse 13, he says that the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. Now again, he's talking to the apostles. You're going to remember everything. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. Now sometimes people quote those and they make application of that to us, that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to my remembrance everything he's commanded, that the Lord's commanded. Well, here's the thing. I know that's not true because I forget stuff. I don't have perfect recall of what Jesus said. But the apostles were promised that. Jesus says these things the night before he dies. So then, we know the drama then that takes place thereafter. That Judas, Iscariot, plots with the religious leaders, betrays Jesus. He was one of the original twelve. He betrays Jesus. He ends up taking his own life. And then when Luke picks up the story now, after Jesus has raised and ascended back to the Father, in Acts chapter 1, Luke picks it up this way, saying that they found a replacement for Judas. So they were 12, and now they're 11, and they're going to find a replacement so that they're 12 again. Now, I'm making the case that the apostles were just a special group of people, and what they did can't be replicated. And that special commission that they had is seen in a number of ways, guide you into all truth, bring to your remembrance everything I've commanded, but also the fact that they're, they're just known this way, the twelve. They're called that in Scripture, the twelve. When Judas betrays the Lord and takes his own life, they're called the eleven. Now you get the idea, right? That this is a special group of people. When you're just known... When Luke can just write the 12 and people are supposed to know who you're talking about, that's a special group of people. But they go to find a replacement, Acts chapter 1. The Bible tells us they chose a man named Matthias, who became then the 12th apostle. But what's interesting about that choosing of Matthias is that the criteria for selecting him was this. Here's what it says. It is necessary, Acts chapter 1, verse 21, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the criteria for selecting someone to take Judas place and become the 12th apostle 
is that this had to be someone who was with us the whole time, who had witnessed the resurrection, and therefore could give testimony to the fact of the resurrection as we now spread the gospel. So one of the qualifications to be an apostle is it had to be someone who had seen Jesus alive after he had been crucified. They're witnesses to the resurrection. Now I'm going to give you some more passages here in a minute. But just before we go on, if that's all true, and it is, then can you have any apostles today? You got anybody seeing the risen Jesus? So there aren't any apostles today. This is a special group of people. Number to select number. Particular qualifications. Paul, when he was defending his ministry in the book of 1 Corinthians, just let that sink in for a moment. Paul is defending his ministry. Paul had to defend his ministry. Paul had lots of detractors. And he's defending his ministry... And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, he says, I have seen the risen Christ. And that's part of the evidence of my apostleship, Paul. So Paul becomes a 13th apostle. Now that's weird because they've been the 12th. And this is a select group of people. Paul had his miraculous conversion, you know, in Acts chapter 9 on the way to Damascus. He was taught, according to Galatians chapter 1, directly by the Lord Jesus for three years. That's how he learned all that he, he learned and then passed that on through his ministry. Paul calls himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8, he says... I became an apostle as one abnormally born. What he's saying is, I wasn't part of the original group. I'm an exception to the group. So Paul's a, a 13th. But he has all of the qualifications that the other guys have. Taught directly by the Lord Jesus. He had revelation from the Lord so that he could teach what he taught, write what he wrote saw the risen Lord. Acts chapter 2, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Ephesians 2.20, quote, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Built on the foundation of the apostles. Again, a special select group. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4. Hebrews 2.4 says that this gospel was confirmed to us through signs and miracles and wonders performed by those who heard him. It was the apostles who were able to do this stuff. Those who heard him. Further, couple more. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. That verse speaks of, quote, the signs of an apostle. That is, the signs, the evidences that one is an apostle. 
and then says miracles and wonders are the kinds of things that are marks of signs of an apostle. Paul says, I, did, I, can, I can do those. So I'm an apostle. And then lastly, Revelation 21 and verse 14. Revelation 21, 14. And in Revelation 21, it's the second to the last chapter in the entire Bible. It's a vision of the end that God gave to the Apostle John. And he sees there the new Jerusalem. And John is given the dimensions of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. How tall the walls are, how wide the city is. He's told about the foundation. And it says the foundation of the city had 12 sides to it. And then that verse, verse 14, Revelation 21, 14 says, a foundation that had 12 sides on which are written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So notice, now John, remember, he's the last apostle. And this is the last book. And you're at the end of the first century. So, when you get to that, you don't have it, and, and this is the end time. So you don't have a bunch of other apostles to add to this. Why? Because there aren't people who meet the qualifications. Why don't they meet the qualifications? Because those qualifications include seeing the risen Christ. They include having this pre-authentication of their ministry that Jesus gave the night before he died. You'll remember all things. I'll guide you into all truth. All right, I beat on that pretty heavy. Just so you get the idea that there aren't these apostles in the future. Okay? This is a select group of people commissioned specially by the Lord to found the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles for them to be able to write scripture, communicate Christ's truth with perfect recall to others who could write scripture. And we have that then in our hands in, in the Bible. Yes, sir. What was the first Corinthians Nine one. First Corinthians nine one. Yeah. Alright. So with that, in the second century, who are you going to turn to? Because you got those guys, but those guys are gone, and those guys had this special commission. So this is what in church history happened. They turn to, we don't have any more apostles, so they turn to what are called apostolic fathers. They're called in church history the apostolic fathers. That is, companions of the apostles. I introduced you to a few of those last week. Clement, Polycarp. Polycarp was an associate of the apostle John. Clement was an associate of the apostle Peter. Now you can see, I think, we've still got heresy, we've still got persecution, but we don't have apostles. You can see the temptation now to turn to somebody else to be the apostles, can't you? And logically, it fell to these apostolic fathers, these people who knew the apostles, for them to play that role. So look at the top of page 6. And we'll see what came out of all of that. Now. 
top of page six, the first four centuries of the church were tremendously important for its future. It was during this time that the church struggled to define itself amidst ever-changing circumstances, both internal, within the church, and outside the church. During this crucial period, the response of the church was a mixed bag. On the one hand, much valuable work was accomplished with regard to defining and refining orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right belief, right doctrine. And so as an example, the doctrine of the Trinity was delineated during this period, during these first few centuries. Now, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity was not invented then. The the doctrine of the Trinity has always been, and it was revealed even in portions of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, certainly in the New Testament. But it was hammered out. It was refined. It was made clear because of some of the heresies that were being taught. So that kind of clarity to what Orthodox Christianity is took place in those first four centuries. Very important work. On the other hand, though, the church adopted a pragmatic stance on many issues that, given time, developed into full-blown heresies and still later apostasy. So heresy is false teaching. Apostasy is a denial, a falling away from the faith. And what I'm laying out for you here is, is that the seeds of what would happen later in church history were planted very early on. In fact, that's why this lesson, top of page 6, is titled The Seeds of Apostasy. So I want you to see the pragmatism that developed within the church. Pragmatism. Practices that work. Doing something because it works but not necessarily because it's biblical. That's what I mean by pragmatism. The church embraces pragmatism in a couple of ways. One, the doctrine of apostolic authority. So the apostles are gone. Who has apostolic authority? Well, Ignatius, one of these apostolic fathers, writing in the year 115, so this is just a few decades after, a couple of decades after the last apostle has died. And he says, or he made the first clear indication of a difference between elders and bishops. All right, what's that? The first clear indication of, the, of a difference between elders and bishops. What is it? So everybody here has got different church backgrounds. If some of you have a Roman Catholic background, then you know that there is a hierarchy. And the hierarchy, of course, at the top is the Pope. But then you have the College of Cardinals. And then you have bishops. And then you have priests. So you have a whole hierarchy. Now, where did this distinction with all of these offices come from. The beginning of it starts with Ignatius making a difference, a distinction between elders and bishops. When in fact there is no difference between an elder and a bishop. Biblically. None. How do I know this? 
because it's in your Bible. In Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, I'm going to read for you from Acts chapter 20. And as I do, if you're sitting there wondering, dude, why are you giving us all this doctrinal stuff? Well, it's because the Reformation, though a historical movement, was first and foremost a doctrinal movement. It was about truth. It was about restoring truth. But in order to understand what needed to be restored, you got to see how it was lost and what went wrong. So there's this distinction made in these terms as if they're different offices. But in the New Testament, they're not different offices. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. It says this, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. All right. So there you have Paul asking the elders to come and meet with him. And as you read on in Acts 20, I'm going to read another passage in a moment from that chapter, but as you read on, what you find is that Paul is leaving. He's leaving after he's been with them for three years. This is Paul's farewell. As you read through Acts chapter 20, it's a very uh, heart-rending uh, it's a very tearful, in fact, it says they wept when Paul left. But he summons the elders. That's who he's talking to. Now, chapter 20 and verse 28, chapter 20, verse 28, he's talking to the elders. And here's what he says. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, remember who he's talking to, the elders. And he says to the elders, you're the overseers. Now, guess what other English word can be translated there instead of overseer? It's a Greek word. It's from a Greek word, episkopos. You get episcopalian from it? An episkopos is a bishop, an overseer. You could translate that. Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops. He's talking to the elders. And he says, you guys are the bishops. And then the next line is this. Be shepherds of the church of God. Guess what word we get from what's translated shepherds? Pastor. So you've got elder, overseer, or bishop, pastor. And these are all the same guys. These are just three titles for the same person. Why three titles? Because they all emphasize different aspects of the person's work. The elder idea has to do with the character, the maturity of the leader. Overseer, bishop, has to do with managing the work. Pastoring, shepherding, has to do with feeding the flock. So it's the same persons with these three functions, but they're not different offices. All right, that's Acts 20. 
Now, First Peter chapter five. First Peter five. Peter's writing this, and he says to the elders among you. Be shepherds of God's flock. Now notice, he's talking to the elders, and he says, be shepherds, be pastors. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. So in two verses, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you've got the same thing you had back in Acts chapter 20. You've got the same people who are called these three things, elders, overseers slash bishops and pastors shepherds so biblically there is not this hierarchy the highest office in the new testament for the church is that of an elder pastor overseer bishop all the same thing but here you are in the second century with no apostles around And you're trying to figure out how to make it work. So what was the rationale for then creating this hierarchy? Middle of page 6. The reasons for the rise of the monarchical bishop in distinction from the office of elder. So you got pastors, elders, but then you end up with this monarch, a monarchical bishop above the pastors. Why? The Bible doesn't have that. Why did they develop that? Here are some reasons. One, there is the natural tendency of one of any group to become a first among equals. So even when you do have a group in even just a single church and you have multiple elders, pastors, overseers, all the same people, different terms, even when you have that, there is this tendency for someone to become sort of the spokesman for the group. If you're not careful, that spokesman can become above the other elders. Secondly, the need to centralize the church's authority for administrative purposes. So, frankly, it's just easier to corral people if you just have somebody who's one person who's in charge rather than, than everybody going off and doing their own thing. Third, the need for leaders to speak and act on behalf of the church in response to persecution. You've got this persecution going on. The apostles would do that in the past. Now who's going to do that? Somebody's going to be the spokesperson for the church. And then heresy required authoritative leaders to define and uphold sound doctrine. Now I say note, the rationale for creating an extra-biblical office are pragmatic, not biblical. That is, this is the situation we're in. This is what developed. But it's not because the Bible taught that that's the way to do it. Now, I want to stop here and add something. I say in that note, the rationale for creating an extra-biblical office are pragmatic and not biblical. That sounds bad. But it's not necessarily bad if it's not taken too far. Let me explain. The truth is, we do all sorts of things that are pragmatic to address issues 
of the day that aren't found explicitly in Scripture. Take, for example, what we're doing right now. We're meeting on a Wednesday night. Where are you going to find the Wednesday night meeting in the Bible? The truth is you don't. So here we've got this extra biblical thing we're doing. We're having a class on Wednesday nights. Now notice that term, extra biblical. It just means outside the Bible. There's all kinds of things we do that are extra biblical outside the Bible. Sunday school. There was no Sunday school in the Bible. So, But we developed it for pragmatic reasons because we wanted an efficient way to educate our young people. And so we came up with Sunday school about 200 years ago. Prior to that, there was no Sunday school. Now, it's a great thing, but it's an extra-biblical thing. Wednesday night classes like this are an extra-biblical thing. So it's, it will help you immensely if you will always keep in mind the difference between something that's extra-biblical and something that's unbiblical. Something unbiblical is contrary to Scripture. Extra-biblical just means outside of Scripture. And that may or may not be contradictory or contrary to Scripture. The problem with what happened here is, over time, it went from being just extra-biblical to becoming unbiblical. And we'll see how that happened as we go as we go on. So you have the doctrine of apostolic authority, and then you have the doctrine of apostolic succession. So someone rises to take the authority, assume the authority that the apostles had, and then a notion develops that there are actual successors and a line of successors to the apostles. And we'll see how that happened. But let's bring it to modern day. Uh, Often when the popes are installed, they're given a name as a new pope. John Paul. Why is that? Why John Paul? Well, this is to show a connection with the apostles. Now, sometimes you'll have Francis, but in the annals of Roman Catholicism, they will try to show you the connection between Francis and the apostles. That there's a line of succession from the apostles through the bishops and then ultimately the bishop of Rome. That's what apostolic succession is. You have the apostles, they die, but they're succeeded generation after generation, century after century, by other people. Bottom of page 6. Clement of Rome. Now remember, he's one of these apostolic fathers, an associate of the apostle Peter. And he's writing at the end of the first century, around 95 A.D., to combat a problem that had arisen in the city of Corinth. He wrote and admonished obedience to the bishops. Clement wrote that elders, bishops, had authority in the church, but here's why, because they followed directly in the line of the apostles. 
They were appointed by and spoke with apostolic authority. Well, you know, Clement sort of kind of had that. He was a friend of Peter. Kind of hard to argue with a friend of Peter. But if it just stopped there, if it just stopped with one generation, but then it continued. And it continued, as I say, not only for decades, but for centuries. Now notice where Clement is located. He is Clement of Rome. And that plays a major role in how Rome becomes the central place for the chief bishop, ultimately what became the papacy, the Pope. Clement exercises this authority and makes this claim to succession that continued especially in Rome. It was a prominent city, the most prominent city, the capital of the empire. And Clement was an associate of a prominent apostle, Peter. Now what was so prominent about Peter? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Jesus says to the apostles, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds and he says, speaking King James English, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So, you got Peter, and the church is going to be built on Peter, and you got Clement, who's a friend of Peter, in Rome, making this claim to be the successor of Peter. You can see how it goes, right? So what does Jesus mean when he says, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you? Now, Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, I'm going to build my church on you, and then on the guy who comes after you, and the guy who comes after you, and the guy who comes after you. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. Now, my understanding of that is just, just read on in your Bible a little further, and you'll see what happens. Because, indeed, Peter becomes the guy. Scared Peter, by the way. And here's Peter making this profession, Jesus makes this pronouncement, but then just a short time later, Peter's going to be afraid when Jesus is arrested. He's going to deny the Lord three times. We know that. Right? He did that. But then he sees Christ a lot. And something happens to Peter so that now he has a boldness that he didn't have before. And on the day of Pentecost, when the church starts... And this crazy phenomenon happens where people are able to, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, speak in languages, languages that other people understand that they had not learned miraculously. And people watch this and they go, what is going on? These people are drunk. It actually says that. They're drunk. Peter's the guy who stands up. And Peter preaches this message. The first Christian message ever preached was preached by Peter. And he preaches this message, and 3,000 people respond to it. And Peter continues to do that kind of thing. Speak out, 
courageously. People are converted. Peter's the first guy that God used to build the church. All the apostles play a role, but Peter plays the most prominent role. There's no doubt about that. You read the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts, and Peter, it's it's all Peter. Then, a guy named Saul gets comes to Christ. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And from chapter 14 to chapter 28, it's all focused on Paul. But at the beginning, it's Peter. So what did Jesus mean? I'm going to build my church on you. He meant, I'm going to use you to start the church. You're going to preach this first sermon. People are going to come to me as a result of it. But Jesus said nothing about apostolic succession. By the way, you're the first pope. And everybody who comes after you will be a pope after you. He says none of that. So there really is obviously something to Peter being the one specially selected upon whom the Lord started building his church. All right, page seven. So you have people like Clement of Rome with apostolic succession. Then you have Irenaeus, another apostolic father. But in him, the authority of the bishop took an enormous leap. This important teaching of Irenaeus was not simply the result of his thought and study. It arose directly out of his long struggle with Gnosticism. I mentioned Gnosticism last week, one of the heresies that was being taught. He's battling the Gnostics, trying to correct the Gnostics. And at one point he says to them what I have listed there for you. If the apostles had known hidden mysteries, let me stop there. Remember the Gnostics or the knowers? That's what I told you last week. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge in your New Testament. So the Gnostics were the people who said, we have a special knowledge. So Irenaeus says to them, if the apostles had known some kind of special knowledge, hidden mysteries, they would have delivered those mysteries, especially to those to whom they were also committing the churches themselves. Who are those people? For they were desirous that these men be very perfect and blameless in all things, whom also they were leaving behind as their ah, their successors, delivering up their own place of government to these men. So Irenaeus says, we're the apostles. We've taken over for the apostles. Now you have a new generation of, in effect, apostles. Now, remember, I went through all that stuff about why there aren't any more apostles. Irenaeus was not an apostle. Clement was not an apostle. But they acted like apostles. And the succession of the apostles then started there, and then it continued. All right, so that plants seeds, seeds that will take root later. Yes? So are they... Saying, therefore, that they have the authority to write scripture? Well, there you go. Right? Because, uh, so, good question. Did you hear Gary's question? Are they saying they could write a book of the Bible? You had books that circulated that were from Clement or from Barnabas, the epistle of Barnabas. And some people said these should be scriptural books. These should be included in the Bible. 
Now, Clement did not claim that for himself. He did not claim that he could write Scripture. So they fell short of that, but there were people who made the case for that. But he didn't. Later, these so-called successors of the apostles would say, what we write is on par with what the apostles wrote. If you remember at the end of last week's session, I told you that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is Latin for from the chair, from the chair of Peter, when he's speaking with the authority of Peter, what he says has the same authority as Scripture. So today the Pope makes that claim. Clement did not, but this is just the seeds being planted that would bear this ill fruit later. So this grew into the modern papacy where now the Pope can make pronouncements that are on par with Scripture. Things that are not in Scripture, but are equal in authority to Scripture. I gave you some of those last week as they relate to Mary. That Mary was born without original sin. That's a pronouncement of the papacy. It's not in the Bible, but it has equal authority with the Bible according to Roman Catholicism. So Mary was born without original sin. That's the Immaculate Conception. Mary, Mary was assumed bodily into heaven without her body being corrupted. That's on par with Holy Scripture, but it's not in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible about Mary's conception or birth. Not in the Protestant Bible, not in the Catholic Bible. Nothing. There's nothing in the Bible about Mary's death. Nothing. But both of these are on par with Scripture. So the apostolic fathers didn't claim they could write Scripture. Later, that was assumed by these further successors of the apostles. Good question. All right, page 8. So notice at the top of page 8, this is section 2. Section section 1 was ancient church history, but from the year 33 AD to 312. Now this is 313. And we're going to see the year 313 is an extremely important year. That's why we break it off there for what happens later. With the establishment of the doctrines of apostolic authority and succession, it was but a short step to the recognition of a supreme bishop. The most likely candidate was the Bishop of Rome. So you've already got now the seeds planted, apostolic authority, apostolic succession, who's going to be the most likely candidate to be the first among equals? And the Bishop of Rome is the one who's the most likely candidate for a number of reasons given in Cairn's history book. Let me give you some of those. First, why the Bishop of Rome? Well, one, there's Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church. The fact that Peter and Paul both ministered in Rome makes Rome a hugely important place for the church. Both Peter and Paul ministered there. 
The fact that it was the capital of the entire empire makes whoever's the bishop of Rome a very important person. The largest and uh, the most doctrinally laden, I hesitate to say most important letter in the New Testament, but the largest and, just roll with it, most important letter, the book of Romans. 16 chapters of the letters. It's the largest, 16 chapters. And it's the most dense doctrinally. And it was written to that church in Rome. And then add to that that there were other bishops in other cities in these first few centuries of the church. Large cities like Jerusalem, Ephesus. But over time, the prominence of those bishops faded. And so it left the bishop of Rome as the person to go to. So that's why I say that there were a number of reasons that the most likely candidate to become a supreme bishop was the bishop of Rome. And if you add to that what happened in the years 312 and 313, you'll see how it then went like that. Once this kindling was out there, apostolic authority, apostolic succession, now a particular event takes place and the thing catches fire. And it has to do with the conversion of Constantine. So I have that at the top of page 8. The conversion of Constantine. Now let me tell you about Constantine. Constantine was involved in a battle leading an army called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And this is going to be a decisive battle. If he wins this battle, then he is going to win control of the empire. It looks for all the world like he's outnumbered, he's going to be defeated. Constantine's own testimony is that he saw a sign in the sky in the shape of a cross. And it said, at this sign the sign of the cross. At this sign, conquer. And he went on and won. And Constantine became a Christian. Now, I do it that way for this reason. You know, it's one of those, hey, if you'll get me out of this, right? But he's thankful to whatever gods may be, and this was a cross, so I'll be a Christian. And he becomes the emperor. The emperor is now a Christian. The emperor located where? In Rome. So with all of the prominence of the city of Rome, all the stuff that we've talked about, add to that now, the emperor becomes a Christian. And this changes Christianity in huge ways. I have a quote there for you from church history in plain language. The Emperor Constantine is one of the major figures of church history. After his conversion, Christianity moved swiftly from the seclusion of the catacombs to the prestige of the palaces. The movement started the 4th century, that would be the 300s, as a persecuted minority. And then I say it ended the century as a persecuted minority. That's actually not supposed to be there. So you can strike that line. It ended the century as a persecuted minority. 
when I was typing it, I accidentally typed it twice. Sorry. So it should read, the movement started the 4th century as a persecuted minority. It ended the century as the established religion of the empire. Now just stop there and think about that. You start the 300s as a persecuted minority in the empire. A hundred years later, at the end of that century, it's the established religion of the Roman Empire. And this is because Constantine became a Christian. Thus, the Christian church was joined to the power of the state and it assumed a moral responsibility for the whole society. To serve the state, the church refined its doctrine and it developed its structure. All right. So if you want to get an idea of where modern-day Roman Catholicism came from, now you're starting to get it. Because you've, you know, you've, like me, watched on television at Easter or some mass, some occasion, where the Pope is at St. Peter's Basilica, and there are these masses of people, and there are all of these bishops and cardinals, and they have all of the headdress and all of the pomp and circumstance, and you're wondering, what is that? Where did all that come from? This is where it came from. It came from the pomp and pageantry of the imperial court in Rome. And the church adopted this. It adopted the dress. It adopted the ceremonies of the emperor. So that's what's next here, the imperial church. It changed worship. The early church had a very simple form of worship. The earliest descriptions of how the early church in the first few centuries worshipped come from the writings of people like Justin Martyr, and a writing called, you pronounce that, it looks like Didache, it's Didache. Didache. Didache is a Greek word for teaching. And the full title of this book, the Didache, is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It was written in the middle second century. And as you put that together, you have what Earl Cairn says here. Here's the way the early church worshipped. The service, which was held on the day of the sun. What day would that be? Right? I should say sun. Yikes. I can't spell. <laughs> the day of the sun. Started with the reading of, now get this, the memoirs of the apostles. What would those be? That would be the New Testament. The memoirs of the apostles. Or the writings of the prophets. Who would that be? That would be the Old Testament. The memoirs of the apostles, the writings of the prophets, for a period of as long as time permits. Now, if you ever get ticked at me for preaching too long, remember this. As long as time permits, all right? Then it says, an exhortation or homily based on the reading was then given by the, quote, president. I like that. You guys can call me president going forward. The congregation then stood for prayer. The celebration of the Lord's Supper followed the kiss of peace. 
The elements of bread and water and wine were dedicated by thanksgiving and prayers to which the people responded by an amen. The deacons distributed them to the homes of those unable to attend. They took up a collection. Then the meeting was dismissed and all the people made their way to their homes. Do you see what's involved there? That's just a simple ceremony, isn't it? That's a worship service happening on Sunday. It's got a sermon. It's got the Lord's table. It's got people fellowshipping together, the kiss of peace, prayer, just all these simple elements. Very similar to what you do on a Sunday morning here. But despite that simple liturgy, many church fathers adopted a pragmatic approach here as well. So the church fathers, and now we're now we're three centuries into the church, into the fourth century, they began to adopt pragmatism on this as well. Now, this is just one example I'll, I'll give you with regard to baptism. Baptism. As you go through your New Testament, the only kind of baptism you'll be able to find is people getting dunked in water. That's the only kind of baptism you'll be able to find. If you doubt what I say about this, uh, I have referenced here for you the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. If you were to look up, which I'd be happy to give you, because I have it, but it's a long and scholarly article, and it's about baptism in the early church. And it quotes in that article, does A.T. Robertson, who I list here, a New Testament scholar, he quotes from the Didache, this second century book I mentioned. And he shows that in the second century, this is now after the New Testament has been written, after the apostles, but even then in the second century, they understood that when people get baptized, they get dunked in water. That's what the Didache says. Now the Didache does do this. It says, if you can't find a place where there is water, then pouring is permitted. So if you don't have a river, if you don't have some place for somebody to get dunked in water, then in exceptional circumstances, you can pour water over the person. But that was the exception, not the rule. Notice what I said. In that article, note especially the section quoting the Didache, the exception, pouring, allowed for practical reasons, actually ended up becoming the practice of the church. So we got different ways of baptizing people. Yeah. And because the emperor has now become a Christian, the way the liturgy looks became completely different. Bottom of page 8. The church becomes Roman. Now, what's the full name of the Catholic Church? The what Catholic Church? Roman. You ever thought about that? It's the Roman Catholic Church. The reason it's Roman is all the stuff we're talking about here. The centrality of the capital, all of that, the history of Rome. But then Constantine becomes a Christian. And now the church takes on this Roman flavor to it. 
I'm going to read this next thing at the top of page 9, and then we got to quit. But notice bottom of page 8. As the emperor becomes the number one lay person in the church, a simple ceremony no longer sufficed. You see that they had simple ceremonies, right? But now you can't do that anymore. The pomp and circumstance of the imperial court was adapted to honor the emperor of emperors. Processionals, lights, special dress, and numerous other elements added to the grand setting. Now, you see, that's a quote from Christian History Magazine. I just want you to know that when I, when I quote these things, I'm not quoting Baptists. Christian History Magazine is not written by Baptists. They're just giving you the history. This is how it went. By the end, it says, of the 4th century, by the end of the 300s, Christianity had achieved a dominant position in the empire. And notice I have in bold. Christians felt they could borrow cultural language and language and ideas more freely than before. So it doesn't just have to come from the Bible. We can borrow from the culture how it is we're going to go about worship. So there's a monumental change when the emperor becomes a Christian. And all of that pomp and circumstance that you see in Rome today starts here. So there's a shift in the mindset and a shift in the practices. We'll see that that affects relationship between the church and state. The church actually becomes a government running the state, being involved in state affairs. That then accrues power, like political power, to the church. Ultimately, by the time you get to the Reformation, people have had it with the power of the church. They've had it with the church dictating. Dictating not only to individuals, dictating to entire countries what it is they will do. But we'll see that next week. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this time to think about these matters and how what you gave us in Scripture over time for pragmatic reasons, extra-biblical practices become unbiblical practices. Lord, help us to learn from that. Help us to learn from that as we apply it to our own lives and ministries. That we be ever careful to do what we do because you have given it to us in your word. We ask you to help us in the weeks to come to be able to see clearly the events and issues that gave rise to the protests that became the Reformation. We ask you to go with us this week as we serve you. Grant us safety and bring us back together next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.